Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years since the race of a thousand years, an international sports car race that took place in Adelaide, Australia, on the full Formula One Grand Prix circuit on New Year's Eve in the year 2000. Joining me, Luke Blackman, to chat about the event. As usual, I'm my brothers Adam and Daniel and my friend Brock. Why do we remember this race so fondly, given it was scrapped after one year? Well, Luke, it's the equivalent of IMSA rolling into town now at a straight track. So say IMSA announced they're going to run around at um at the Gold Coast. It's, it's a pretty big deal, really. It's a very big deal, actually. It's a super cool concept. I think the part is we hadn't really seen anything prior to this event and obviously, sadly, with the one-off nature of it, we've never seen anything like it since. So, um, yeah, so I think just that one-off, one special time in Adelaide 20 years ago now, it's, um, yeah, really stuck around. Yeah, 100% agree with both Brock and Daniel there. Uh, the big boys rolled into town with uh, you know, cars that we all have seen run at Le Mans and I guess across America at the time. Great cars, big names to come out. Big event after one year, as they said. Do you think given it only lasted one year is probably why we sort of remember it fondly these days? Yeah, I I think it's just the, as I said, like the uniqueness. It's like so many people, well, we'll touch on were there, but I mean, I think myself, I'd be like, how good would it have been to be at the one, one time only ALMS race in Adelaide? So, Especially because at the time... From from memory, it was sort of largely ignored in a way by the sort of the local print and TV media. Was it was it to- totally ignored? Because not actually- totally ignored, no, but I I think at the time it was just at the time sort of you know the the five hundred cc Grand Prix was huge. Like we had Rally Australia um, in WA, which was quite popular. We had the um, Gold Coast Indy, sort of, I think. It was just the, another It was just another international race. And also at the time you sort of had the push from V8 Supercars saying that, you know, what? why do we – they were saying to governments, saying, you know, we've got this product in Australia and they were trying to con- convince local government to back V8 Supercar street races um, that sort of the sports car race was sort of just, just another international race. I think the other thing is I don't – I'm not sure – you know, just your average Australian motorsport fan, how closely they would have followed ALMS back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go up to the hill at, you know, Winton and ask a bunch of guys if they follow IMSA, I'd say most of them would say no. No. So that probably contributed to it mm-hmm. not getting the hype that it probably yeah, deserved. Yeah, but Channel 10, like they were they were the event partners Yeah. Um, in it. Obviously, they didn't show the event live, but they, they obviously had a bit of skin in the game. Yeah, they showed highlights of various various ALMS American Le Mans series rounds that year, but um, I mean, just highlights, and I think it was paid for television. Mm. But uh, I think, from my point of view, in that uh, for, for it there, like if it lasted two or three years, I think it would have still had the same effect um, from being the once off that same thing we've been saying the you know. It's the equivalent of IMSA these days rolling in for it. I think if it rolled on for twenty years, it would. I think it would come into oh, it's the big event coming back again. I've been there four or five times. I'll watch it from home this time if it was on TV from there. So I think that uniqueness of being only once 
right there is, is what, what makes it everyone still talk about it these days. Yeah. Something interesting is like I was raised on <clears throat> racing like all of us, but I, I my dad never told me anything about the race of a thousand years. So I was seven when it happened, and then I remember he has his model car collection and he had this crocodile car. I was like, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's from the race of a thousand years. And I had never heard of it. Yeah. So you're right. It wasn't um, it wasn't a big big news story at the time. So I think you mentioned not a lot of people on the hill had know what um, IMSA is mm. at the hill at Winton. That was one of the things why Don Penoz, who we'll touch on in a minute, what when he created the series and he named it, why he called it the American Le Mans series, was he said that the name Le Mans is a name that, is one of the when it comes to racing, it's a name that immediately everyone in the world generally knows. Whereas if you called it, say, the American Sports Car Championship or something, that 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 name doesn't resonate as easily. But the Le Mans name mm. gives an mm. idea of what it is. No, that probably yeah, I, I agree with that for it there. Um, for it there, like same thing is these days if you equivalise it to the Australian market, um, you know, you call it a touring car. People, oh, you mean V8 supercars? Well, that's the same effect, the the reverse way for that. Yeah. So yeah, hundred percent. Like, for well, it's kind of like if you just called the touring car championship the Bathurst Championship or the Bathurst car races. Yeah. Um, I think it was good good branding by yeah. Don Panels, and he obviously that that brand's lived on. Well, not in America now, but in terms of you know European Le Mans series, Asian Le Mans series. So it's um so it is quite an evocative and um, strong brand. Yeah. So, this was sort of the third attempt at an international sports car race in Australia, given that in 2000, the way sports car racing had gone, it was basically the de facto world championship, the ALMS. But we tr- we tried twice at Sandown in 1984 and 1988, and it hadn't quite got a foothold. Again, another event I had never heard of because I wasn't born then until you introduced me to it. Yeah. And I- it's going, is that Group C cars at Sandown? Yeah. That is so cool. But again, I just didn't know about it. It yeah. just didn't get the hype it deserved. Yeah, they were sort of – they were at the end of the championship year. So, for instance, the first year, the um, you had a lot of Porsches come out for in 1984, but some of the other works teams like the uh, Lanciers stayed away. And then in by the time it got to 1988, you had the, the main Saubers and Jaguars came out but um, some of the leading privateer Porsches and that stayed away. And that that ultimately is what hurts the race of a thousand years as well in that not all the leading teams came out because it was the end of the year. So from what I understand, there were a lot of subsidies put in place that essentially wasn't going to cost the teams anything more than a, a normal round. Yeah, well, it shouldn't. And that's well, that's what a lot of the international events in local series try and do. They try and they don't want the international. They, they try and get the local promoters to pay the money, mm. so it doesn't cost them as much. But that's like they succeeded in that because I think looking through, there are a number of teams that obviously participated um, in it and and confirmed that that it didn't cost them any more. But I think when you look at the likes of BMW um, and I think it was the Corvette um, GTS cars as well, that they like it was almost they were just looking for a reason not to. And, and the fact that you know traveling fifteen hours down to Australia to to a race, it was just yeah. it wasn't a financial decision in the end, but it was just uh, you know what were they to gain from it? Yeah, yeah. We'll come to we'll come to sort of the entries of the race in a minute, but a bit but a bit of background. So the American Le Mans series 
was created by a man named Don Panos, who, amongst other things, he headed the company that um, headed the company that invented the nicotine patch. And from there, he started up his own company that developed it. And sort of that's how he made his fortune on the back of the nicotine patch. And ultimately, his son had a company called Penos Auto Development, which was funded by Don. And when it was when it was founded in 1989, their goal, one of the goals originally of the company was to enter a car at Le Mans with Mario Andretti driving. And that goal eventually came true in 2000 when Mario drove with them at Le Mans. From there, his interest in motorsports got to 1997 where he had his own car, the Panos Esperante, and it was entered in the um, FIA GT World Championship and ultimately Le Mans. That was the, the it's a very silver? iconic car, isn't it? Silver. Yeah, silver with the yellow yeah. little lip at the front, I think. Yeah. from The Visteon sponsorship. That's right, yeah. yeah That's a cool car. Out. A lot of people recognise that car. I think it's... It's um, prominence in Gran Turismo helped. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's a cool car. And by loud, loud too. Yeah. Beautiful sound. By um by the late nineties, he so by the late nineties he'd invested in what was then called the Professional Sports Car Racing Championship, which was originally IMSA. It had changed its name in the mid nineties and he invested in it. And for nineteen ninety nine, Don obviously I suppose, had ideas for what he could do with a championship. And he did a deal with the ACO who run the Le Mans 24 hours. And the deal was that for him to start a series taking the ACO rules, the complete rule set, and applying them to races in America. So for 1999, when it was started, his series basically replaced the Professional Sports Car Racing Championship. And they sanctioned it and ultimately he would uh he actually bought the complete company professional sports car racing in 2001 and ultimately renamed it to imsa as a sanctioning body but it shows from a from an interest in motor racing that seemed to stem from his son starting up a company he got very involved very quickly mm. people like this other backbone of motorsport aren't they outside of the big manufacturers but yeah, it's interesting that yeah, so no involvement prior to that. But obviously, not, not that I son. could find, not, yeah. not nothing major anyway that I could find. Interesting. Has his son is his son still involved now? Obviously, we're jumping forward quite a number of years, but I, I'm not sure now. Yeah, I believe he was still involved in the team. When was the last time the panels raced in a sort of factory sense? Mid two thousands. Yeah, I think they were still they're in the GT class. Yeah, they in were. the mid two thousands. Yeah. Um, They'd sort of pulled back from outright prototypes by then, but obviously, yeah. With, with with when the merger happened and things like that, that just appears they have fully retracted from, um, you know, kind of like a visible role within the sports car scene. In the yeah, US. well, they sold their tracks and everything. Yeah, they bought up uh, Sebring and um, Road Atlanta. Yeah, in that time, and sort of when they merged with um, Grand Am, sort of all the ownership sort of passed on to well, Grand yeah. Am NASCAR. Yeah, so it's all in and then uh, now they're pretty much all out. Yeah. But no, but yeah, by the time when he started the ALMS, it was it was basically, I suppose he was almost saving American sports car racing because it had fallen a long way from the glory days of the early 90s. So when the, 
when it changed from ALMS to well, what was eventually IMSA, well, like what was the difference between ALMS and ESCR regulation-wise and car-wise? Ultimately, that, that was similar. Professional sports car racing, it was similar to Le Mans rules, but they had their own various interpretations, classes of car and re- re- requirements for different rules. And I think his, his idea was that if he applied the Le Mans rules to a national series, that way people could come in from overseas and the, the car rules are set. They know, they know what to expect. Americans can take their cars to Le Mans. And yeah, the cars yeah. are already eligible. And so he, it, it just ran locally. And he also established the Petit Le Mans at, at his own track, Road Atlanta, which is sort of a local nod to um, to the great race at Le Mans. But he had big plans for the ALMS, American Le Mans Series. And in late 1999, it was announced there'd be a race at Adelaide on the old Grand Prix circuit in the 2000 calendar. And it was announced that it would be on New Year's Eve in 2000. How, how did Adelaide get thrust to the forefront for the American Le Mans series to come down under? That's that that's something I've always wondered myself. Being around that, well, David Brabham, David Brabham, who was who had signed on to drive for Penoz from 1997, so he was well entrenched in the team by 2000. In late 1999, there's a quote from David Brabham saying that when Don Penoz asked, asked him some time ago where would be the best place in Australia to race, the first word I said to him was Adelaide. So whether I, that's I, really I guess, what happened or... I guess in 2000, like the Grand Prix had only sort of recently sort of yeah, transitioned years. away from yeah. there and it was like the, the touring car event was like sort of standing alone. Like yeah. it was a big event, I guess, in the 2000. And I think, yeah, I think for South Australia too, that was still very dirty that they'd lost the Formula One Grand Prix. So this this was a way to get a international level category back to Adelaide and kind of show show off the circuit and the um uh, and the city. And do we know why they chose the the Formula One version of the track rather than the, the supercar, yeah, supercar version? I would say it was possibly it was FIA length okay. the track. Yeah, I just wondered I'm, that. And maybe to set aside a difference yeah. between yeah, yeah. the Clipsal 500 for V8 supercars, which had sort of – I mean, that was a very popular event. I suppose this was just building on the success of that and a way to use the old track. Yeah, and it's, it's a much better track too. But the, the oh, supercars didn't run the no, F1 no. layout. They run their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they shortened it, I think, for logistical reasons in the town. Okay. But – um. Just they had to close less roads off. It's just interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like a street circuit, you very rarely get a, a, two events at a street circuit that run on a different configuration yeah. except for sort of Formula E. Yeah, with yeah. With the exception of that, it's always the same layout. Yeah. But but with that, at the time of the announcement in 99, did that ALMS run anywhere outside of America, outside that? Not in 99. Well, Canada. But they, um, if that counts. But uh, for, for the, the, I mean, the, the plan was the ultimate blueprint, which came to came to fruition, was that in two thousand, as well as Adelaide, they had announced they'd run two races in Europe. So, with an ultimate goal, was that the the races in Europe in two thousand would launch, uh, would springboard into a two thousand and one European Le Mans Championship. And the race in Adelaide would springboard into the Asia Pacific Le Mans Championship. 
to run alongside the American Le Mans yep. series, which so would um, it was a springboard. You yeah, they, they were going to use the European that. races to launch the European series. Yeah, the Adelaide race would launch the um, Asia Pacific series, and then the idea was from then on they'd run their own series, and Adelaide in years to come would become sort of the grand final for where the ALMS champions, the ELMS champions, yep. and the Asia Pacific champions would come together at the end of the year. You can't knock the concept. No, nice no, idea. great idea. Sounds really yeah. good on paper. What tracks were they going to run at in? Europe. Well, 2000, it got announced they would run at Silverstone and the Nürburgring. And they sort of re rebirth. It was a rebirth of the um, Silverstone 1000 Nürburgring, and the Nürburgring 1000. Which, the, unfortunately, the, no, the Grand Prix track. track. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that, I didn't know that. This yeah. just got way cooler. That would have been. <laughs> but when, when the Adelaide race was announced in 99, there's, um, there's some good quotes from Don Penos in the, in the, in the announcement. He, uh, he says that Adelaide will get all the spectacle of Le Mans without having to get a passport or a plane ticket. Smart move. Yeah. He said, and a, well, if there's a capital of motorsport in Australia, it's Adelaide. Eastern Creek might um, argue with that, judging by the sign on <laughs> the home of Australian on, motorsport. On the home of Australian motorsport, Eastern Creek. Sydney Motorsport Park. And it, Well, there's sort of an ominous line that Don comes out with as well. We want to be in Adelaide for as long as the people of South Australia will have us. Rather ominous. He also says in it, my, my two passions in life are drinking and driving, although not at the same time. It's a bold move when you're launching a race. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know how a quote like that would go down in yeah. 2020. I don't think Heineken would support it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unless it was Heineken Zero. Uh, Cooper's a major sponsor of the event, though. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Our local, local Adelaide yeah. brewery. Yeah. It, it also comes to light later on in, in a March 2004 document called the National Competition Policy Review of South of the South Australian Motorsport Act 1984. It's revealed in that that Penos Motorsports Australia promoted the race and took all the financial risk, which I would say helps and it gives another indication how the event got over the line. And I, I just I can't knock this guy. Like no. this concept is really cool. He's backing he's, it. Yeah. Yeah, like he's walking the walk. I mean, it's I don't I can't understand how this didn't blow up into something <laughs> yeah. huge. Like it all sounds rosy well, at the moment. And he was putting like he had his own team in the series and he committed he, well, he ultimately committed three cars to the race as well in the outright class. And I wish I was old enough to sort of travel down there by myself and watch this. Well, mm. so do I. I sort of look back now and I think to myself, so why didn't I go? And I remember I was still in school. <laughs> yeah. Well <laughs> school holidays. Yeah. It's also revealed that the race slogan was a uh, New Year Top Gear Race Here. Smooth. Makes Smooth. You, makes you wonder, mm. do, do events have slogans these days? Uh, Sometimes the big ones do, occasionally. Maybe for new ones getting launched. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a new event that's – but the, the yeah. standard well, – The, the supercar ones do, you know, the special spectacular super sprint oh. style Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> so they haven't got any better. <laughs> well, I, I think I think the big ticket events they write their own, like the Le Mans twenty four hour. Like you, you don't need a slogan for the Le Mans twenty four hour for a poster. But maybe in nineteen twenty three or whatever year well, it was, they did. Yeah, you had the person out in the streets spruiking. Yeah, back then. But like even I think the Petit Le Mans, which we touched on before. But you know what? It's very American to have a slogan. It is. So 
maybe yeah. yeah. I think in Australia it's like not really our thing, but you know the Americans are all about theater and cinema and yeah, it's very theatrical. <laughs> so ultimately, the two thousand American Le Mans series is run over twelve races, nine in America, two in Europe, and finished off at Adelaide. It's a big. It's a running through the schedules. A big. I don't like. We'll get to it later, but I also don't blame some teams for <laughs> come December. Not, yeah. not being willing to willing to take up the last round because it's a big schedule. Yeah. I think from uh, 12 hours of Sebring in March yeah. uh, going across to Europe for two 1,000 race, uh, thousand kilometre races and then as well as Le Mans. They, ke- they kept the calendar Adelaide. free for everyone to go to Le Mans as well. Yeah, so I'm like it's a mass- massive schedule. They, and it was supposed to be longer because it were, the season which ultimately opened at Sebring, it was originally supposed to open at a street race in San Diego. Which was had originally been scheduled for the '99 series, but was put back to 2000 to give organisers more time to prepare. But ultimately, this race fell over because they couldn't they couldn't meet the timelines to prepare for the race in February. That's and interesting. The, ne- never knew, San Diego would be never incredible. Knew, yeah, San Diego. Never knew they were going to have a race. And the the best one of all, well, not the best one of all, the unfortunate one of all. There was there was supposed to be a double Asia Pacific swing at the end of the year. There was supposed to be around it in Malaysia at Sepang at the start of December to sort of tie in with um, Adelaide at the end of December. But after they'd sort of worked out a date of December 3, it was revealed that the race fell during Ramadan and they would struggle to get enough officials. Bit of an oversight. Yeah. It's a bit like um, when they originally announced the 2020 supercars race at um, at Pukekohe on Anzac Day and then it was revealed later on, oh, they don't actually have permission to race on Anzac Day. <laughs> At that event. And so now we're starting, we're seeing events cancelled and everything. But yep. I mean, can you guys imagine if this all worked? Yeah. Yeah. Can't well, believe how cool this is. The yeah. vision, you, go, you can't fault the vision at any of this. No. It's, yeah. it's awesome. Well, and it left two rounds between the, um, sorry, two months between the final two rounds then at Las Vegas and then coming in Adelaide. So I guess in a way that might have also played a part in teams just tapping out after Las Vegas. Yep. What, tr- what track is in Las Vegas? Um, Roval. A yeah. rival with uh, so Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Can, can we please call it, call it a road course? I'm really no, it's against, a roval. It's a roval. It's the Charlotte Roval, mate. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> deal with it. Well, actually, round it? two was on the Charlotte Roval. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say half the championship roval. Do, yeah. do you call it the Daytona Roval or do you call it the Daytona Road Course? It's different though. Well, the, I I heard the term roval yeah. since they did the reboot of the track for the NASCAR a couple of years ago. And then every, I, everyone seems to be calling it a roval. I understand I th- it's a I road can underst- course on an oval, but I'm a traditionalist in that aspect. It's a road course. I can understand why they'd call, say, Daytona a road course or the Indianapolis track a road course, whereas I, I would usually term the definition of a roval on, like, your one-and-a-half-mile high bank speedway where, you know, they're sort of going up on the oval, down into a chicane, back up on the oval, a little, a little Mickey Mouse infield bit then. No, I reckon. Well, actually, maybe that sounds See, like Daytona, I, but <laughs> my my definition in my head is if if NASCAR run on it, it's a roval. So Daytona is now a roval because the NASCARs were on it. Well, different config. They had an extra chicane. Doesn't so. matter. <laughs> See, Charlotte. If it was sports cars running on it, it would be the Charlotte Road Course. But because NASCAR did it, it's a, roval. It's a damn roval, Adam. I, I think the the backdrop to all this as well. When we're talking about the big visions and the the how much panels was investing in it as well. The launch of Grand Am that obviously is playing out 
in the background in the United States that yeah. has, as you said, Don Penholz has kind of saved American sports car racing. And then you've got a rival yeah. organization fronting up um, in 2000 as well. Yeah. Obviously heavily affiliated and potentially funded through NASCAR. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've kind of got the IndyCar, uh, Champ Car kind of rivalry going there. As sort of, yeah. As, as he's trying to launch some uh, his worldwide expansion. Yeah. I think they sort of served two different um, markets, though, in a way. Like, I think Grand Am initially, like, it didn't attract any of the factories um, outside of Daytona. You never had... Um, you know, Audi wasn't going to run Grand Am or BMW or Panos or didn't. Well, obviously Panos wouldn't, but um, no, no, no. I mean, Corvette would do Daytona twenty four, mm. but the main manufacturer interest was in the American Le Mans series. No, I agree, but I think more from a like you probably you lost think, some privateers. Yeah, but also yeah, you look look at the casual viewer too, and trying to well, not even casual, but even like the motorsport fan, and trying to differentiate two sports car series. You've got a oh, Daytona yeah, twenty four, yeah. you've got a Sebring twelve, you've got, and that kind of thing. I don't think's actually helped it. Yeah, yeah, um, especially when he's trying to launch it and you know yeah. get mm. bigger. But the, the so the two thousand American Le Mans series, it it really was a season of two halves. It started off in the Sebring twelve hour where Audi, so Audi Audi had a had a works team along with BMW and Penos, in the outright class, and Audi were very dominant with their brand new Audi R eight at Sebring, but then they parked it till June at Le Mans, and they went back to their old nineteen ninety nine car for the next two rounds, and BMW won the next two rounds at. Charlotte on the Roval for, with uh, JJ Lado and um, Jorg Muller. And they also won the Silverstone 500 in Europe, which was which showed actually where how competitive the series was because you had the privateer Raffinelli Lola on pole um, and all the, manuf- all the different manufacturers in uh, prototype were up the front for the race and they all had a chance to win and ultimately BMW did win. Then they went to Le Mans and then Nürburgring was the fourth round of the season where Audi started running the R8 again, the 2000 model R8. But the Penos one, Brabham and Jan Magnussen, dominated the event. But then from round five onwards, the Audi R8 takes over and they're not beaten for the rest of the season. Um, McNish ends up, Mc, Alan McNish and R- Ronaldo Capello, or Dindo for the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the podcast, uh, they end up taking six wins for the rest of the year. Um, well, five wins for in in addition, they won the opener. But um, yeah, it ends up being a domination for the rest of the year, and the other other cars can't get close to them. No, impressive run. Like you look at that back half of the season and that momentum they took from Le Mans, um, Le Mans onward uh, is quite crushing. Um, as you said, BMW got left behind. Panels valiantly fought on, but yeah. just didn't have, couldn't hold the torch to them. Yeah. I think BMW had almost lost interest. Well, exactly. <laughs> they were eyes fully set on the Formula One world. Yeah. Um, for, for beyond. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But to give an idea, after four rounds, after Nürburgring, round four, before they went back to America for rounds five to 11, McNish and Capello were, eight, were seventh and eighth in points, 40 off the lead BMWs. Mm and by the end of the season, they were—I they, mean—they were miles in front, McNish and Capello. So, it, it is a—it's a, it's a great season to watch. 
Um, you can watch all the all the twelve rounds on YouTube if you want to put to put aside yeah. a couple of days to work through it. I'm currently <laughs> eking my way through the C Ring twelve hour, and um, yeah, the coverage is is awesome. Yeah. So um, do yourself a favor and do you reckon they were sandbagging pre Lamont? Well, they, I mean, they're running the old car, so I, I don't. Maybe they, maybe they were just saving. Know, it's just weird, like they're they're sort of average, and then mm, yeah. more, and then unbeaten. <clears throat> yeah, but I think it shows you the huge step they made between their R eight R, the yeah. open top. Oh, sorry, the um, uh, the older car, the ninety nine. Yeah, the ninety nine. Yeah, versus the two thousand car. Yeah, because they um obviously they rolled out the R eight for Sebring. Yeah, and were super quick. Uh, and then obviously they reverted back, and obviously it just shows you those '99 cars. The BMW was um, was a lot stronger. Yeah, that was but a really good looking car. That BMW. Is that the? It Dell? was. Yeah, I Dell. like. I don't know. I, yeah. I was never really majorly into the open top prototypes. Really? But, yeah, but I the really BMW really unique. I, I, I like them. I just think they're classic. Yeah, like. they're classic. Adam's right. They're iconic. Luke, they've got their own <laughs> time. I much preferred the um, the Audi R8C from 1999. I wish they'd pushed on oh, with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. the closed top prototype yeah. that they sort of they sort of hedged their bets in '99 with an open top and a closed top. Yeah, they're in four. But cars I mean that. But I mean that R8C ultimately formed a bit of a, a bit of a basis for the Bentley attack from yeah. 2000 onwards. But for, further to what you into, you alluded to earlier with the um, the round not costing the Adelaide event shouldn't cost any more than the than any other round. The one of the big um, sort of offerings that the American Le Mans series put in place for the Adelaide race was they put some very generous freight and travel subsidies in place for people to get to the race. And amongst other things, one of the provisos was that, as Brock said, the race shouldn't cost any more than any of the normal rounds. But also all the team members would receive a subsidised a subsidised Aussie vacation with their families there was free accommodation for four members per team from December 20 to January 3. So that's a proper holiday they mm. were giving them. And uh, accommodation for a wife or partner was free and all the other accommodation at reduced rates. They also, well, Adam would be a good person to ask for this. Um, re- regular series competitors were offered a 40, 40-foot container for $15,000 per car. Is that is that a good deal or...? Back in 2000. Back in 2000. Back in 2000. Is that US or AUD? I'm assuming that would be US US. and I'd say air freight as well. Probably. For it there because especially even though it was a two-month break from Las Vegas to Adelaide for it there, uh, by sea freight, I think these days it's 45 days, I think, from from Anaheim to Sydney. I think it's around about 44, 45 days in that there and clear customs past that. So I reckon that might be air freight back in the day um, for it there. Um, for that, I reckon on a group deal these days, um, usually it's subsidised for the season for most uh, Asian uh, Asian series. We do it there um, for it. But, yeah, it's probably competitive at the time, so... One thing, there's a quote from Don Penoz in the article about the freight and um, travel subsidies. He says, um, this is a fabulous opportunity for people to not only finish the series in style, but also enjoy the biggest party they'll attend for a thousand years. I hope the packages we've put together will give teams the incentive they need to see in the real millennium properly. 
what one point they they seem to really make a big point that this is the real millennium it's celebration. Why, it's why it's called the race of a thousand years. Yep. Yep. That's why they called it that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Again, very American, you know, very theatrical. But I guess that goes back into his uh, statement earlier about I, I like to, to to drink and drive, not at the same time. He's got the thing, come for this great race, but then enjoy it, have a holiday, let's party, let's yeah. do all that, So, which is also the American way. Let's do it big well, both ways. It's working because, like, we're going through all this and I wish I was there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it doesn't say he's, he's thought of every aspect of it. Yeah. It's not yeah. he's just put on a race and made a lot of noise. He's actually, as you said, he's, he's walking the walk by providing – Travel arrangements, incentives for family members, yeah. holidays, race. So, yeah, as I, I can't knock him. No, no. Yeah. I think what's coming through is he sees the series as a family. And he's really passionate yeah. about he, it. He, he, he considers everyone, even if you're on different, he wants everyone to, everyone to be included. I mean, fa- family deals and things like that in yep. there to bring your whole family out. And I mean, for, for a holiday, you, you know, out here for Christmas and. Mm. It, it, and all it, that, it's um, it almost seems like he wants it for everyone in the series to be like the end of season trip. Oh, got, for sure, yeah, like, I'm sure know. it was, yeah. But it sees it, he, he see he sees it as a family, not just as a racing series. Yeah, and but yeah, I did I did find it. Yeah, that there was a big push made that this was the real millennium, not 99 into 2000 was the sort of millennium celebration, which I suppose technically is right, although it's not as cool to see a clock tick over from. Oh, 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 to oh one, one as it was to see four digits change from ninety nine mm. to two thousand. But um, amongst the other noteworthy things leading into this race was there was a there was a new camera system that was going to be introduced called the NaviCam that would use GPS tracking to make the car on stre- on screen stand out more. Now, when we when we watched the race in preparation, did you notice the cars standing out more on camera? No, no. And have you noticed it ever since? The, the only uh, thing I'd say was potentially watching it on YouTube, there might have been some uh, quality. Yeah, the the high well, not high definition back then, but the definition might have been a little bit lost. Yeah. So I'll give them a pass yeah. there. One of the more unfortunate aspects of the advertising for the race was um, so there was an ad an advertisement that used to play on TV, usually during the Channel Ten American Le Mans series. Um, episodes during the year leading up to the race where where they played the ad for it and amongst other things on the ad there's a line from jj lato saying um we all can't wait to come down under of course jj lato and the bnw team don't end up coming Mm. (laughs) there's also in the ad for adelaide it advertises corvette and ferrari yeah. Neither of them showed up. <laughs> they did well. <laughs> and there's a lot there's a line in the ad that says CF1 stars, Alberetto, Lado, Brabham, and Johansson. Well, three of those four didn't turn up. <laughs> um, hey, there was at least one for At least Brabham so. did. <laughs> well, there there was a few in the end who'd run F one there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean I mean why was Emanuele Piero not in the ad? Yeah. Um Yeah, it's I mean, it was a bit unfortunate. I mean, months out, you can't. You've got to take a punt. Yeah, correct. I don't. I don't think that affected anything. No, like no, anything no, not, not at all. But looking, but when you look back on it, it's uh, yeah. It was a shame Audi didn't bring Michele Alboreto, given he was a contracted Audi driver, and yes, yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then obviously the the events that, uh, that followed as well. Yeah, so, um, yeah. 
So if we turn our attention to sort of the um, the entry list to the race and who who was coming and who wasn't coming, there's a real soap opera that went on during the year with regards to particularly the the, the top three major teams in the series, which were Penoz, Audi and BMW, as to who, who would be running in the race. And there's none more so than the Penoz soap opera that led up to led up to the event. So it started off early in the year where um, Don Penoz offered um, Mark Noski, a young a young up and coming Australian driver at the time, he offered him a test at Road Atlanta for August that year, and he says that he's looking for a driver for Adelaide. Now, before the test takes place, there's an article where. Um, Mark Noski is announced as a Penos driver for Adelaide, and that he would join a um, he'd join a three car Penos team. So I suppose that was the first announcement that Penos would run three cars rather than the usual two, and he was likely to partner test driver Klaus Graf or their endurance driver at Le Mans Pierre Henri Raffinel. Now, when you heard that, Daniel, what was your first comment? I was. Oh, Jamina, happy there'd been Australian elements to it. However, Mark Noski, like... I reckon he was be- pretty good. Well, a, but I, I believe your comment was um, surely you paid for it. Well, yes. And and, <laughs> and with, without being uh, harsh to Mark Noski too, obviously his father was heavily involved in Patch Scuderia at the time and obviously... So that's Branching Horse Racing who it ultimately turned out were coordinating the Australian end of the panel's effort at the race. Yeah, and, and obviously to start with anyway. well known to be quite quite well-funded operation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Noski had had some Indy Lights tests and things in the preceding year. So, yeah, money was no obstacle for uh, the Noskis when it came to slotting uh, people into drives. Yeah. I'm a bit of a Mark Noski fan, actually. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and sorry, I'm not. Let's not slide him. Oh, he, he, he was a very good driver. And, yeah. And, yeah, did some great things. Holding young in line. The Ferrari. Yeah. yeah. The mo- yep. But yep. What, and I don't want to go too far down the tangent here, but he did then after a while disappear from the yeah, uh, the Australian kind scene. of scene. Yeah, sort yeah. of me too. After w, the WPS Falcon deal, which yeah, he says was the of. worst move of his career. <laughs> yeah. Especially as I think he li- he he was he he lined up the WPS deal initially. They came and sponsored him. Anyway, we, we've massively yeah, we we're, we're getting massively off track there. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see here Don Penos's quote when originally Mark Noski was announced to drive the car. So Don had been at the 2000 Clipsal 500 earlier in the year, I suppose just you know, tying up. Was it up called the Clipsal 500 in 2000? For the first that time. That was the yeah. first time. Okay. Yeah. Sensational Adelaide Sensational. 500 before. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was kind of lukewarm Adelaide 500. And Ma- Ma- <laughs> Mark Noski was racing there in the Nations Cup in a Ferrari 360 Modena. And uh, so Don says that he was very impressed with Mark's efforts when he saw him race the Ferrari in Adelaide. He was fast and aggressive, and I was very impressed with his attitude and talent. And he also says he, he always wanted to give an Aussie a young bloke on a young a young Aussie a go on home soil. Now, I mean, you can't really compare a Ferrari three sixty to a Penhorst sports car. I don't know. Front, front end, got, uh, front they've end. got four wheels steering. But I mean, it was very much a production spec Ferrari three sixty Nations Cup at the time. They're both red. Well, yeah, they are. They Different are. shade of red, though. But it um. And Mark Noski's quote is saying after – so he'd lost his HRT drive earlier in the year for Bathurst. So he says after after missing out on Bathurst, to do Adelaide will be one hell of a bonus. 
and he said it was it was a great honour to be chosen for it. But it also comes light that he won't test the car till it's in Australia. He won't get the um, Road Atlanta test later in the year. That's a shame, actually, because that's a pretty cool track, I reckon, yeah. to have a go in a panels mm. around. Yeah. So it also gets announced not long after that his partner for the race of a thousand years won't be Klaus Graf or Pierre Raffinel. It'll be Craig Lowndes, who says wants to do Le Mans, and he was looking forward to teaming up with Mark Noski. Just like BMW. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but at the time in 2000, Craig Lowndes is going through a bit of a contract debacle where he's looking to leave the Holden Racing Team and go elsewhere for the new year. But if his contract is in place with HRT till the end of 2000, so he's got to seek a release to race at Adelaide which is obviously, well, the race ends two, two hours before his contract ends. So he's, he's announced as, as driver and there's promotion promotional posters done that list him, you know, have photos of him and Mark Noski. The, uh, the HRT boss, John Crennan, says that HRT are willing to release him but they need a written request because it comes to light later on that there's a news article saying that HRT blocked him to drive at Le Mans, despite all the promotion going out that he's racing. Race at Adelaide, sorry. Yeah, I, I just find that – so that whole sequence really weird, especially Crennan rolling out that all they need is in writing and they, they had no issue with releasing him when you peel back the layers a little bit and it seems quite obvious that they're dirty about him leaving the team at the end of the year and are going to – stand in his way of actually going and racing. I thought that was pretty dog. Is it, is it true? Like, is that is that true? Well, Prancing Horse Racing say that when they were he- trying to find local drivers for the Panos, they say that HRT lawyers sent them a letter telling them not to approach Lowndes or legal action would be taken. And Lowndes himself is quoted as saying, I was given permission at the time to do the Adelaide race, but that has now changed. Yeah. Wow. Disgraceful, isn't it? So That would have been a big... Big scoops for for the race to get Lowndes because that would have drawn in a whole group of you know Lowndes supporters who would have come watch it who may have you know fifty percent of them may have watched it anyway because they're motor racing fans yeah. but ones that were just specific in touring cars like it could have brought in a whole different element. Poor Lowndes, like even with his Lamore endeavours <laughs> and he just can't yeah. get over there now. Yeah, that's um that's a shame actually. Yeah, quite yeah. petty in like. In hindsight, very petty, and at the time, like totally unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's announced then that Greg Murphy will be Lounge replacement in the car. That's a pretty cool replacement, though. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, not that this is the, um, not that this is the, the 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 gauge of right and wrong necessarily, but uh, Auto Action magazine did an internet poll on HRT's decision to stop Lounge racing in Adelaide, and it said that seventy four point two seven percent thought HRT were wrong, so it, which is interesting given HRT was the popular fan yeah. fan favourite team at the time. So who's Greg Murphy driving for then? Holden. Kmart. Kmart. Uh, so who owned, who owned that? No, 2000 he was Gibson Motorsport. Oh, okay. in, oh yeah. in the Kmart Commodore. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't part of the TWR empire. Yeah, at the time. So, also, so, he wasn't leaving for Ford. Yeah, true. So, which, yeah. yeah. But, but still, I just... There's some hypocrisy in that. Um, yeah, I'd from Holden. love to know if all that's 100% watertight. Yeah. Because it just sounds crazy. Yeah. Maybe it is true. I don't know. And it comes to light not long after that uh, Jason Bright will take over the second Penoz seat 
alongside Murphy in place of Mark Noski, who it said Penos, the Penos team are quoted as saying Noski fell foul of a lack of finance to cement his place. <laughs> so it seems you were right, Daniel. <laughs> well, no, no, just looking at its, uh, the cards on the table there, yeah. I, it, it just struck me as odd that Don Penos picks out Mark, Mark Noski From out of way. all the drive, drivers yeah. available in so Australia. So Mark never got to drive the car then? No. Yeah, Brabham and Murphy got to sorry, not Brabham, Murphy, Murphy and right. Bright get, yeah. get to test it in um in America before the race. So in the end, that American test does cool. take place. Mm. Um, and then David Brabham ultimately ends up becoming the third driver in that I'm car. Enjoying this. This is all so interesting. <laughs> I was too young to to know any of this. This is cool. Yeah. So they end up forming a bit of a Australasian team for the race when it because the original plan is for. David Brabham and Jan Magnussen, the usual teammates at Penos, to drive the brand new car, the 2001 model. Oh, because they were still Brighton Murphy in the 2000 car. Yeah, yeah. So Brabham and Magnussen were going to drive the new car, but it comes to light there's a bit of development issues with it and they want Brabham in the most sort of – which the makes most sense. prominent car you, for the yeah. race, the one with the best chance. Don Don wants the event to be successful. Uh, Brabham, home, hometown – uh, driver wants wants him to be in the lean car and smart call. Like obviously they had a um, that new car turned out to be an absolute pig. Yeah. So um. So yeah. Yeah. But no, a real shame Lowndes couldn't run. But there there was a real there was a well there was a lot of rumours that went around with Pen- Don Penos was obviously trying using his cars to try and get some names to the race. So amongst the rumoured drivers to be part of the lineup at Adelaide during the year was that um, he tried to get Mario and Michael Andretti together How good. in a car for the race because Mario had driven for Penos at Le Mans that year, as we mentioned earlier, but Mario wouldn't refuse to racing at Adelaide because he didn't feel like he was up to, up to par with his performance at Le Mans. But, and basically Don was hoping that using Michael Andretti to race might sway Mario yeah, to go and do it, but that obviously came to nothing. Would have been you look at that track and what transpired. It would have been pretty brutal. Yeah, on Mario. Well, he did come back a couple of years later to practice at Indy. He did. And look, look, look how <laughs> that, that was pretty out. brutal. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was much more brutal yeah. than Adelaide would be. Um, now Klaus Ludwig was also linked to a penalty seat. That one hit me for six. I didn't know that at the time. Um, Klaus, he'd retired after nineteen ninety eight. And then came back to do DTM in 2000 um, with Mercedes. But then to be linked to a seat at Adelaide in a Panos was a bit was a bit left field. The seat ultimately ended up going to Klaus Graf, the Panos test driver, to drive alongside Ian Magnussen in the 2001 model Panos. But um, whether something got lost in translation between the two classes. It would have been great for Klaus Ludwig to race, though. Yeah, that would have been. He was a sports car stalwart. and It, it shows you how far to, far and wide. It comes back to it as well. Don was willing to do whatever it was to have the best chance of success for the event. Yeah. So It's also announced and led up to the race that um, the, the drivers of the second panels in 2000, Johnny O'Connell and Hiroki Kato, were being replaced after Adelaide for 2001. So they have a drive... And two hours later, they're out of contract. So Audi were, as we've mentioned earlier, Audi were the dominant force in the 2000 American Le Mans series. It's interesting to note that at the start of the year, they the, the effort was announced to be North American funded, Audi North America funded, and that the funding wouldn't, wouldn't extend to Europe or Adelaide. 
but ultimately in the end they end up they end up committing to all the races and it start they start off the year by saying that probably will be there the decision has not been taken when it came to Adelaide as the year rolled on and the organizers of Adelaide were apparently trying to get Tom Christensen in to partner Frank Beeler and Emmanuel Piero in one of the work in in the in the second works Audi um, to sort of, I suppose they wanted to, they, those three won Lamar together in 2000. So I guess they wanted to bring the, um, bring the dream team back together. But there's an interesting quote during the, during the year from Tom Christensen, where he's asked about what he thinks of Adelaide and the event at Adelaide. And another bit of an ominous quote, he says, uh, it's an event that is already, ex- that is already a success before it has started. Bold, well, it bold, is. But I, I like mean, it. Yeah. On paper, it is a success. I yeah. mean, like we've said it a thousand times. This just sounds <laughs> yeah. awesome. So, and he, he, I agree with him. And Christensen says he wants to do the race, but it's likely only if the teams need three drivers. Which is a bit of a race, not likely. Yeah. yeah. Which it turned out they may have. <laughs> Actually, yes. In the end, it was possibly they probably did need three drivers for the car. It was looking that way on the Saturday anyway. Because where, where was Christensen at his career at that point? In 99 or 2000 he, at that point. He'd won, well, he'd won Le Mans in 97 yeah. on debut, but in 2000 he was driving in the British Touring Car Championship for Honda. Yeah. Um, and 98, 99 he'd done the German STW Cup yeah. for um So it was very for early Honda on. Well. Yeah. Prior, yeah, okay. Yeah, but it's sort of – he was doing a bit of sports car racing. and. But one, one thing that – what that one really cool thing that came up in the lead-up to Adelaide – with regards to Audi, was they unveiled a paint scheme for Alan McNish and Dindo Capello's car in a, a crocodile livery. Isn't that an iconic paint scheme? Like when, when you think Audi R8, that's one of the first open-top sports car ones that that you think of, the crocodile paint scheme, in my mind. Up, up there with the um, Bathurst 12-hour uh, tribute in 2015. Yeah. Well, I think that crocodile livery defines the race. Ooh, big call. Oh, def- defines the right. You know, like well, that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. You think about it, it sticks out. Yeah. So one notice, one noticeable omission from the race of a thousand years was the works BMW prototypes run by Schnitzer in two thousand. Now, at the start of the year, they they announced a full camp or not. Well, it was made out they announced a full campaign, but if you have a look at it, they never. never yeah. They mm. they never actually committed. It's announced at the start of the year that Schnitzer will prepare the cars, the great Schnitzer team, and that Jorg Muller, JJ Lado, and Bill Orbelin will be the drivers. And it was expected Joe Winklehock, or Smoke and Joe as we know him, would be the um, would be the fourth driver. But at the last minute, BMW releases him, and it gets announced he's doing the DTM with Opel in 2000. And um, BMW basically say they didn't want to stand in the way of what he wanted to do. So ultimately, John Mark Gunon, former former F1 driver, gets announced as the fourth driver. But it is made out that BMW North America is funding the team, and that they still wanted they'll still do Nurburgring and Silverstone, because um, they're quoted as saying we are planning to do the full season. We should take the opportunity when there are two races in Europe. But there's no mention of Adelaide in that, <laughs> but they do say full season. Um. Now, during the year, there, there, there was obviously some intention to do Adelaide because um, Formula One driver in 2000 for Prost, John Alacy, gets linked to driving a Schnitzer BMW at Adelaide. Would have been, that would have been huge. Yeah. 
That would be great because he, he was friends with Gerhard Berger, who was the BMW Motorsport boss at the time. I, th- I think once again, the positioning of this event is so like obviously New Year's Eve mm. so late in the year. BMW were committed to doing the to European rounds, even though it was North American funded. But once again, they kind of weigh that up and they go 2001. Things are really cracking on with uh, uh, their Formula One campaign, and do you know what I mean? It's it's so late in the year. Yeah. What's what? What are they gaining from it? Championships are already done. Yeah. Well, it says that um, Lacey's participation rested on Alan Prost. Um, his team, F1 team owner, giving the approval, but they, they, BMW says he should be available for it, but it was a moot point in the end. Although the article from Crash.net does say that Schnitzer is yet to commit to Adelaide, but would commit if the race if they were still in title contention, which ultimately they weren't after um, after the second last round in Las Vegas. And w- when the announcement does come through, it gets announced that yeah, as I said, they pull out after they lose contention for the title. And they're going to spend December testing the new GT class BMW M3 for 2001. The quote from Mario Thiessen from BMW says, our decision takes immediate, takes immediate effect. Adelaide is bound to be a spectacular event, even though the titles are already accounted for. It's not Mario Tyson. Probably. Yeah. Yes. Was. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> uh, Charlie Lamb, the Schnitzer team manager, says that um, – on New Year's Eve, we'll no doubt be thinking of Australia rather wistfully, but deep down we'll all be glad to be back home in Bavaria with our families after our lengthy American visits. And it's also announced that Bill Orbelin, who'd driven the prototype all year, would still be in Adelaide driving the GT-class BMW M3 for PTG Motorsport. Charlie Lamb's one there is a classic way of saying thank you, but no thanks. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like I saying wonder- it would be great, but. We're not going to be there, but have a good time. All I can think of is there must have been a really good BMW New Year's Eve party planned. Well. <laughs> and Char- they've gone, Mario and Charlie have been on the phone and thought, oh, we could go to Australia, but we don't want to miss. <laughs> should we spend don't, half don't, a million dollars yeah. going to Australia? Or should we, we, we don't want to miss the New Year's Eve party. <laughs> the, the, the problem for BMW was they had, so Hans Stuck, who was the lead driver of their GT class BMW with P2G Motorsport, which Bill Orbelin was joining, so he turned 50 on January 1 and was also ducking off to the Great Barrier Reef straight after the race for his honeymoon. Taking full advantage of Don's offer. Yeah, it's done yeah, that yeah. perfectly. So you can, you can wonder the phone call. You can see Mario and um, Charlie have come up with a great plan. Oh, we won't go to Adelaide. We'll do this. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the BMW New Year's Eve party. It's going to go off. And then one of them's come to their attention. Oh, what about hands? It's his birthday. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs> we'll we'll send you down with um, even though we drove a different car, but um, you know you can rep, you can represent the prototype team down there. But yeah, so it, it does also say at one point BMW were thinking of continuing with the V twelve LMR prototype in two thousand and one, but ultimately didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't end up happening. Um, one side note to BMW, the PTG BMW team, is they won the, the Cooper's Home Brew competition during Pre- 2000. Prestigious uh, award. ALMS one. rounds, yeah. So they won with their with their brand of beer called the Check the Splitter Bitter. Not a bad one. Would you like to try that? Probably tastes better than Furfy. 
I don't know about that. Nah, Furphy's all right. Don't know about that. <laughs> Joking, Furphy. Yeah, there's an opportunity here yeah. for your Furphy too, if you can. I've I've snuck a few Furphys down at the twelve hour out of Luke's esky. Don't worry. But um, from Australian interest, when it came to sort of local entries for the race, um, Jim Cornish, who'd been running in the Australian Super Touring Championship for a few years, visit your vet Honda Accord. Yes, yeah. He um he did a deal to drive. What would was in reality an LMP six seven five car, or what nowadays we call LMP two, but it was the only LMP six seven five car entered in the race, so they just got bumped up into the outright prototype class. But he was supposed to drive drive a car called a Pillbeam. Tested, um, he tested, he went to Silverstone and tested the car. So I mean that from where the Australian Super Touring Championship was in two thousand to get a drive like that is um. Yeah, no. Pretty good. And he was going to drive with Michael Malik, who was the son of Ray, who um, ran Ray Malik Engineering, won the British Touring Car Championship in 1999 with Nissan, and uh, Jamie Wall, who Australian drive people would know from mm, he, he did the, did the 98 Bathurst 1000 with Mark Adderton in a Honda Accord. He did the opening round in Lakeside. 99, well. yeah. yeah. And he also did the 97 British Touring Car Championship mm. in a in a Vauxhall. But so that ended up. That ended up not running, which we'll come to in a in a later part of the of the podcast. But um, there were a few other Australians who ended up on the entry list. We had Alan Heath, who, who was running V8 supercars at the time. Um, Ray Lintot ended up in a Chamberlain Engineering Viper. Darren Palmer and Christian D'Agostin got in a Porsche. Christian D'Agostino, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> was it called Channel 7? Was it Channel 7 coverage back then? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even Des Wall got a start in the um, in a Rowan Skay Porsche. Rowan Skay, an Australian-born international businessman mm-hmm. who had a couple of Porsches running in the race. But so, so it was good to see a few Australians get on the grid. That's what, yeah. With um, you know, yeah, your Brabs, Bryce. I don't know if we'll, we'll count Murph um, as a Kiwi, but but yeah, it's a good no, representation. We always claim the Kiwis. Like, well, so we'll include Murph yeah, in this one. Exactly. Yeah. But so good range too. You go from super touring, sports sedans. Um, I believe Darren Palmer was in F3 at the time um, and, and up to V8. So, yeah, no, good representation of the Australian motorsport scene. So just to finish up the first part of the episode, I've got a bit of a question for you guys. It was announced in the lead up to the race that after the race there would be so many people at the event that they're going to need two concerts and you had two choices you could go to the pit side party featuring in excess with john stevens along with taxi ride or you could go to the new year's revolution concert on cbc oval which was headlined by the living end umi and spider bait so where are you going to go after the race go on the kylie minogue concert luke (laughs) 2000, Kylie Minogue. She was the big star. I'd be going to that one. She wasn't at Adelaide though. Oh, <laughs> oh brutal. She was a part of In Excess. God, I'm so enraged. I'm big Tim point. Rogers fan. I'd, I'd go to the UMI gig. Yeah, right. Where are you going, Adam? Oh, probably In Excess for me. Yeah, I'd go to In Excess. Go, go from my time back at there from growing up, heard a lot of In Excess. So I'll yeah. go to the Living End. <laughs> <laughs> Punk rock, two thousands. It's pretty cool. Yeah, not the real NXS. So, yeah. wow, or oh, four fifths, and fronted by John Stevens. 
Didn't Powderfinger play or something? Uh, not in my notes here. Maybe I misread that somewhere. What about you, Luke? Oh, in excess. In excess for you? Uh, yeah. Easy. So the big story in the first two days of on-track action leading into the race was Alan McNish's back. How did he hurt it? Apparently, Which story do you want? Yeah, he was <laughs> he was dancing in a kilt or something. He was hopping out of his kilt. Hopping in, hopping out, dancing around in his kilt and got injured. That's what I heard. Yeah, he was lifting some suitcases as well. In a kilt, possibly. Potentially, well, yeah. And then was the other one crashing a bike or... Fell off his push bike. Yeah. Maybe he was... Lifting his luggage while riding a bike in his kilt. <laughs> then he had to step out of his kilt when he crashed it. Maybe Voila. it was a it was a bit Ooh. of all. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that the fact that there's that um, that many stories going around. It's a bit like the Montoya and his shoulder one yeah. playing tennis. Playing tennis. <laughs> so yeah, it's probably right. on the bike. Well, there we go. He was riding a bike in a kilt with a suitcase, yeah. and that's how he injured it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he he was basically it was between him and Dindo Capello to win the championship. They were in the same car. And McNish had only got ahead due to the interesting ALMS point score. Yeah, so he only had to do 25 laps in the race, is yeah, that correct? Because they were driving together. Yes. One driver could get a bonus point, depending who set the fastest lap. I find it interesting that you have to have a lap requirement in a timed race. Yeah, that's a that still happens to this day. That's interesting, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah not, not a minimum hour. Uh, yeah, yeah, you think it'd be time, yeah. you know, like a percentage, because then it's a guaranteed percentage of the race. Mm. Yep. Whereas if it's laps, like if it's wet or your car is like super slow or something. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Oh. So in practice and qualifying, it becomes pretty clear that the Audi is the quickest car. And on form for the year. On form for the year. Right. It's not just the quickest car. It's like a Dominate. 2020 Mercedes <laughs> yeah. on steroids. <laughs> so really, I guess the McNishan, his back was sort of... A bit of um, a bit of drama thrown in What's to the front runners. Not the only drama the front runners would have in the lead up to the mm, race. No, 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 no. Amongst others, they call in uh, Brad Jones to potentially replace him. That's a big scoop for Brad Jones. You know, fronting the Audi program, and he in Australia he got lined up in some pretty cool rides. Yeah. Really, like all the Audis and everything. Yeah, it shows you having a good relationship with a manufacturer mm. can pay off. That's He's very cool. Just getting the call up and, uh, yeah, to drive one of those cars, jumping from what was in it at the time. Uh, Aussie Mal. S- yeah, Aussie the Mal Falcon Parker. and just yeah. finished up with the, um, the Audi. So you go from a yeah a front-wheel drive two-litre car or, and to a whole rear-wheel drive Holden Commodore into no, a panel AU, sports AU, car. Yeah. AU Falcon. AU Falcon. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Some say the best model. Not me. <laughs> Definitely an icon. <laughs> But the uh, yeah, so while that's going on, um, the Australian, well, the Australian driver Jim Cornish, who was driving the pill beam, that car gets withdrawn due to homologation problems, which is strange because I, I get that that it apparently had FIA homologation approval, but not ACO'd. Why not just run the thing? That wasn't even an outright car. No, no, and it's but it got it got bumped into the outright. What class. was wrong with its homologation? Uh, it was to do with the pedal box. It was. Um, one story was that it was homologated with the FIA, but the ACO didn't recognise it, the, or the Le Mans rules didn't recognise that homologation. The other one was that it had passed its homologation, but the team didn't have the papers to prove it. 
So, so why not just run it and then they DQ it? You've come all the way to Australia. Just run the thing around and, yeah. There was a quote from the team saying that even even though um, they weren't running, they'd rather be here not running than back at home. <laughs> so Really? Yeah. So I guess they still well, have to spend New Year's Eve. I guess it's a free holiday. Yeah. Yeah. See, maybe they knew it wasn't going to get allowed to race. And they were like, <laughs> they took Don's putting on this free holiday for everyone. <laughs> he pays to ship the car out. Let's do it. Yeah. Also becomes clear in the early days that Penoz is, um, Don Penoz is just very delighted with the facilities. And he says that the series has a long future in Australia. Rather ominously again, <laughs> as we mm, were jinxed saying. It. But also the, the David Brabham says that the Penoz just is struggling for pace compared to the Audis. So there were two iterations of panels in that event. Yes, yep. And Murphy and Bright were in the older version. With Bra- David Brabham, yep. Yeah. And Jan Magnussen was in the new one. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. They were a fair way off, way off the pace on the opening days, weren't they? Have you the, seen... The new, the new one was. The, yeah. the 2000 spec one was... Was pretty good. Have you seen the on board with the two thousand one? Because they ride on board with the Audi, and it's so smooth. It's like this, like this seagull just gliding (laughs) over the ocean. (laughs) And then they jump on board with the with Brabham, and oh, it's like a freaking pogo stick. Like it just looks undrivable. Ultimately, it pretty much goes to plan. The Audis lock out the front row in qualifying, and in the GTS class, uh, the Vipers. Are uh, very dominant in that. Oh, they were the a Orica cool car, Vipers. weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And they looked good too. That they did. that red colour scheme with the yeah, yeah, white stripes up yeah. the middle. Yeah, so it wasn't wasn't a fiercely contested qualifying session, um, but for a six hour, I suppose no one was looking to, um, you know, try and steal the pole position away from Audi. No, no, that, never in question. So then we come to race morning, and Dindo crashes the Audi. And in the morning warm up, how, how how often in big events do you see that happen these days? Yeah. Wasn't it a suspension failure? Ah, uh, wheel fell off. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. A car failure. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It was interesting as well that I found out is they recovered like almost no parts from the car, <laughs> <laughs> so everything just has gone. <laughs> so it's in man cave somewhere in yeah. South Australia. <laughs> I think the Vaja just scooped it up, launched it into the yeah. crowd, and it was just. Yeah. yeah, but of all the things that so could go wrong, so they skinned yeah. a crocodile in uh, yeah. Adelaide. Yeah. Pretty much, it reminds <laughs> you of the you know the diamonds on the Jaguar nose cone. Oh, that's at right. Monaco, <laughs> and the, they crashed, and the diamonds just vanished. <laughs> yeah, mm. so Ended up on the uh, the casino at uh, Monaco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. So they were, they were worried they may not be able to fix the car, but it ended up the monocoque wasn't damaged. So they were able to repair it and then Alan McNish was able to take the start because they'd worked on his back throughout all Saturday. Because he didn't drive it all on Saturday. Not on Saturday, no. no. And he'd only done a few laps on Friday. And Brad Jones drove it on, on Saturday. He got yeah, some late in. Saturday and he did a bit, a bit of the warm-up as well. Okay. Yeah, he got to, I think so. his best lap was about six seconds off, which is pretty respectable yeah. for being thrown in at last. Because he would have yeah. had to do minimum laps to be included mm. Into the That's into probably the all event. it was. Yeah. Just to just roll around and don't yeah. bin it. Yeah. yeah. We'll we'll come to that in a bit. Brad Jones driving, but at the start, it's an all Audi front row and um Frank Beeler initially takes the lead and the two Audis just take off. Da- David Brabham gives a bit of chase early, but it was kind of just a 
rolled off the start and just fought, got pretty much got into line in the first half of the mm. first half of the opening lap. Yeah, McNish just just pulls in pulls in line behind um, Beeler. I think it was the way yeah, it yeah. and just yeah, which is a smart move. Yeah. Like well, feeling yeah. out his back. Yeah. So Brabham gives chase, but um, he just just slowly loses a bit loses a bit every lap. And as it goes on, McNish starts getting right up onto the back of uh, Frank Beeler. It's an interesting battle that because he he McNish is all over the back of him. Um, the the seagull kind of motion that you were saying how the Audi was gliding uh, part changed a bit when McNish is bouncing from side to side. He's stepping the thing out, but ironically, when he puts the move on Beeler, Beeler kind of just. Coming out of the hairpin yep. into that double left, he just kind of opens the door around out of, some back marks. It's like he gets yeah. out of his way. Yeah, that looks yeah. sus. It reminds me of a saying, um, the 1981 Formula One World Championship finale, that when um, Nelson Piquet comes up behind title rival Carlos Reutemann and he just pulls up behind him, outbreaks him, passes him. Nelson Piquet was quoted after the race. He said that I came up behind Reutemann and he opened his legs. I mean, that's pretty much what Beeler did. He just came out of the airport, did, did, yeah. pulled right, and like, McNish just went underneath him. Do you think it may have been him? He would have obviously known McNish had back issues and he had to do his 25 laps. Do you, do you think Beeler was like, I'll let him go. He's probably going to, you know, come towards the end of the 25 laps. He, something might happen to his back. I'll just let him go. He's going to hop out of the car. Then well, the other driver has to do I the majority just, of the yeah. other. I think he just had that much pace. Yeah. I, like, I, I think, if anything, Beeler was probably like, he's all over me. Um, What's the point? I mean, McNish probably him. wasn't going to try and have a deep dive at him, but um, Beeler was probably like, he's annoying me being behind the Yeah, it was, it was in traffic. It was, but yeah, no, it was, it was, pre- it was a pretty, it was probably the most interesting sequence of the race. Mm. So. Well, yeah, because McNish takes the lead and he just, he just takes off. Mm, yeah. End of the second lap, the, um, the brand new panels yep. um, enters the, Enters the pits and never to be seen again. Yeah. Omnent, omnius, ominous, ominous. Star, <laughs> thank you for uh, for that car because um, that sums it up really. Yeah, and I mean, by, by the two hour mark of the race, McNish is leading Beeler by nearly one and a half minutes. Yeah. Um, that's two pit stops in. Although Beeler had lost time, he he, he ran into Bob Wallach's Porsche, which um. Or spun the Porsche right around, and Beeler lost a bit of time. Uh, Brabham had—he nearly had a crash with Boris Said um, coming into, um, I suppose, it'd be down Wakefield Street. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he squeezed him like a, he got yeah. some air over the got, uh, yeah, ripple strips gets, too. I mean, it almost went out. As someone did that, they'd pull into the pits and replace the nose, or yeah. replace, mm. then Brabham just turns around and gets going again. No, that wasn't very kind of Boris. Yep, um, Brad Jones who we touched on earlier, he did have a bit of a participation during the opening part of the race when um, he was helping out in the Audi pit stops. So he'd built the driver's Driver in. assistant, yeah. But, yeah, I mean... Bradman was kind of hanging in there, but, yeah, as I said, like miles back, well, well over a minute back, but yeah. just kind of holding strong in third spot. And the, I mean, the field starts falling apart behind them. Like both the dams Cadillacs, this was common halfway. back in those days. Yeah. Mm. They, they were so disappointing, those Cadillacs. Hey, they looked mint and they weren't particularly fast, but I was like, they were the two cars that you think you could have could have hung in there and this was the type of event that was made for them with the high attrition. Yeah. But no, they uh, they were gone very early. Yeah. 
Well, it almost seems that three-hour mark halfway through the race, that's when you know, talk about the dam's Cadillacs there for it there, um, from it there, and, and, and the other panels with Cato when it snaps a drive shaft yep. um, for it there. So it all, all, all seemed to take off. Was, it, was I correct they pushed that? Uh, number two panels back into the pits from the front straight. Yeah, it happened on the green. front straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. What's wrong with that? Well, I was like, just, yeah. Shows well, you the time 20 years ago. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I was watching that and going, is this for real? Well, also around half distance, that's when the second placed Emanuele Piero Audi um, crashes into the wall. Yeah, what he got, got squeezed by one of the. Yeah, I mean, he was being quite forceful through the traffic. Like he was. He's having a go, but he gets on the marbles in the um, – I mean, a few people have gone off in that spot over the years, mm. but um, he hits the wall and he, he parks it twice trying to get it back to the pits. And, yeah. And, I mean, I don't think the car – the car ends up getting back to the pits. Two but, hours yeah. after he – so on, under its own speed, gets back to the pits two hours after the accident. Yeah. It's like, good on him. He's it, stuck with it. He pulls it over once on the Jones Strait, then pulls it over again on the Brabham Strait. and. Uh, from from my access to endurance racing that that I've been participating in, for it, I would say that someone on a scooter probably jumped in, went round, casually dropped off some parts for him to get it rolling to get back there, or there was a mechanic there telling him what to do because I'm I'm assuming without knowing the rules off by heart that th- they would have said there would be no team interaction outside of it, but the driver can do what he needs. So I dare say he would have you know, worked on the car himself and get it back. Or it may have been overheating and it just took that much time for it to get back to oh. cool down to get there. No, the car was <laughs> pretty second-hand, I yeah. think. Um, uh, good, good on them, though, for, for sticking with it and watching that drive in back into the pits. That was, yeah. that was awesome. So, so that put the Brabham Murphy bright Penos into second. They were two laps adrift at halfway in second place. And then not long after that, Murphy... Puts it into the wall. Puts in the wall hard too. That's when I first saw. It, I, th- I assumed it was like they were just wearing brakes, which you can understand around the track. But everything I've looked at, they've just said no. He's just gone in, Cooked carried it. too much speed, and yeah. And you can mm. see him try and steer out of it as you can see the wall the, approaching. It was one of those. That, like I know he hits a tire wall, but the damage doesn't seem to equate to how big the crash no, was. He tore that front left right off. So, um, like you'd think he's just, it looks like, he, I mean, a heavy hit, but he, it's like he just nosed it in. Yeah. And it's full of tires. Back, yeah. And then driving back, I mean, the wheel's hanging off. And yeah. But um, no, but once again, credit to Panels for repairing the, mm. repairing the, the car and um, getting it back in the race. Obviously, a large until, number of laps down. Uh, until yeah. the next one <laughs> 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 happens again. Different driver at the helm, though. Who was at the wheel for the second one for that? That was Brighty. Brighty. Yeah. He puts it in late in the race. Once again, strange place. That that right left and um, just what the rear steps out, tries to catch it, and it fires him, fires him in. Apparently, it was really. I heard them saying on an interview or something somewhere that it was a really, really strange car to drive. Yeah, yeah. like just really unorthodox to drive. Yeah, and especially you think it's not when Bright was driving it. It's had the front end of it rebuilt yeah. as well, so there's probably a lot going on. Corner weights would have been. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I mean it ends up being a a waltz really to the victory by uh, McNish does a great job despite his back he does he does quite a bit of the race and um the car never looked like losing really no in his hands or Dindo's hands not controlled the, it from the, the team did debate putting Bray Jones in for the last 15 minutes 
of the race, but they couldn't get a clear indication of. So they ultimately they were they won the race twenty one laps ahead of second place. The France Conrad, Charlie Slater, Alan Heath, Lola. Shout out though to both those Lolas, the Raffinelli uh, Olive Garden Lola, and then obviously the Conrad Motorsports one. But two cars that were a long way behind all those top prototypes. They're an odd-looking shape, that Lola. But, geez, yeah, I was yeah. cheering on that Raffinelli car. I, I didn't, 20... like, didn't like the nose of it. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't with that headlight in the middle. But yeah. I, 20 years ago, still to this day, I was watching it, especially the Raffinelli one, yeah. those onboard shots that the NBC broadcast showed. Um, looks an absolute treat. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I was heartbroken when that one broke out late in the race. It yeah. broke down when they were looking at a podium. Yeah. But, uh, like I guess we just talked about some of the attrition that was in the race, but you look at who popped up on the third place on the podium. You got Beretta, Wengliger, and Dupo in the Viper. That's yeah. not too bad for a GTS spec car. Oh, very to, cool. Like, it's definitely worth the mention. That was yeah. one thing that stood out to me when I saw the results. Yeah, they got third and fourth in the leading GT class. Porsche finished up fifth with uh, Dirk Muller and Lucas Lur, who yeah. uh, went it on to took out the championship. Yeah, actually, I believe the. All three cars that won that round also took the championship. So some nice alignment and synergy there. Yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, yeah, ultimately, just I suppose it summed up the year, really. Yeah. No, dominant cars. It's, it's, nice, it's nice to see all three classes, the champions, end the, end the season with the win. Yeah. Yeah. So really, I mean, there was a, there were a few different crowd announcements announced over the course of the weekend for the end of the race, but um, the general, it was around 80,000 turned out on race day, which I think is a really good crowd. Oh, I think it's very impressive. But no one had sneezed at that today. No. But roughly 150, give or take, over the over the three days as well. And if you if you watch the, the tape of the race, I mean, the stands are full. There's yeah. No, it looks great. Yeah. Looked looked really good. But, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a great race. No, no, no. 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 But... But the like event... It was a good hype. Yeah. It was a good idea, but oh, yeah. it if, was a crap race. If, if, a bit of a fizzer, really. Yeah, that's one for the purists, you might say there, Brock. It was one you were yeah. more hoping. You would have sat there at the start line thinking, I hope Brabham can keep him in sight. Mm. Yeah. But, it was one of those or you'd, ones, ha- you'd yeah. hope Beeler and Piro might have put him in It was just cool to see those cars around e- that Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the... Um, but then that's imagine where if you threw BMW, if they made the track out, where yeah. would they fit? with the Audi resurgence in the second half of the ALMS yeah. season in that. Mm. Yeah. That would have been interesting because obviously they, w- they would have been closer to put a bit more pressure. Like they wouldn't have they wouldn't have the speed for the 77, no. but at least they would have been closer to put that pressure on. Yeah. A bit of scoreboard pressure. After the event, there was a lot of positivity. The A 2001 event was announced. Not on New Year's Eve though, unfortunately. This was going to be a race on December 2, 2001, but optimism in general that the race was going to kick on. Yeah, and I think from everything I'd seen at the time and I was really excited to see where the event would would go 12 months on. Um, And as you said, that movement to December 2, I think looking at your BMW and your Corvette examples, just moving it back that month, still at the end of the season, but not on that fringe of the the two years, um, I thought was a positive move. Yeah, I mean, especially as you had you had some new manufacturers talking about coming in at the time, that may and with the, the plan of an Asia Pacific series could have maybe got some of the Japanese manufacturers back interested in 
the series in like long term looking forward. Yeah, definitely. And, and generally, just a bit more of a foothold you were hoping in the Australian market that um, with with the number of Australian competitors, uh, the Nations Cup Championship in Australia just growing that little bit more. Um, yeah, the avenue for more crossover from Australian drivers and teams was there as well. Could have been the uh, sports car festival in December. Yeah. There's a slogan for they could have used them for it. Yeah, You've got to put the word super in there to Sorry. be a... <laughs> Especially these days. <laughs> <laughs> Things start getting interesting for the event though early because when the initial V8 supercar calendar for 2001 is announced, they also announced their final round is on December 2 ah, at Let me ask you this. Who did it first? Who announced the date first? Panels. Right. ALMS. So it's like 2015 Bathurst 12 hour. Mm. All e- over. Exactly, exactly, exactly like it. Similar result There's in the damn end, trend here, supercars. <laughs> More than one category can exist in this country. <laughs> there is, there is ex- exactly. But I mean, Tony Cochran from Red Supercars, he's just he's straight off the bat. He says, "Why should we have to move our final round of V8 Supercars for what he calls an exhibition match?" Um, Which is really, once again, coming back to just like stupid stuff that is actually causes more harm to Australian yeah. motorsport than, do you know what I mean? As, as you touched on, the LMS announced the date first. He's saying, why should I move? Well, the question is, why did you schedule it on the mm. same same date? And I'm sure you'll get to it in a second, Luke, but it's almost like the die's cast there um, in terms of what the ultimate move and uh, ulterior motive is from the Vet Supercar Brigade. Yeah. They're just so... Like aggressive towards anything. Unnecessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. It's like you cannot exist. Exactly, because yeah. LMS is not a competitor. No. Yeah. Well, I think it adds things. If you got Murphy and Bright, that gets their names out there to the American audience mm. and they're like, oh, these guys are pretty cool. Let's yeah. watch what they race in. Yep. And, and he's he's got form. Sorry, Cochrane's got form as well. I think, um, which it's in the future, but you cross forward to 2006, give or take, when uh, he was having a bit of a blue with the WA government and he wasn't going to fund a street race. So when that got denied, uh, his solution and threat was to tell the WA government that he would purposely schedule a race against the WIC event in Perth so that they would take the Channel uh, Channel 10 TV and that the WIC race wouldn't have any live coverage. So, I mean, like, just shows you the mentality that they had around this time that they were trying to... Yeah. I know it's business, but, like... Oh, it's just... Come on. As as, as race fans, though, it's like... You shouldn't have to pick one or the other. Well, it's interesting... Well, with regard... That was 2001, that little stash with the WA government. And the the direct quote after, basically, the WA government says, we won't fund a street race, Tony Cochran says in auto action, says, seeing they think we are so insignificant... They won't. They they won't mind us running on running an event at the same time on the same weekend against their rally next year, and we will have their TV. Of course, they think we are insignificant. I'll effing show them who's insignificant. So once again, so this is like bully boy tactics, mm. putting a jeopardy an you know actual what, Australian event. Uh, you know what, but it worked. Well, and we'll get to <laughs> no, no. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. And and yeah, no, no. This is the thing. It did have influence. And but I'm like, look at the Australian market now. We have no international sports car race. Well, we have 
the 12 hour only because supercars well that, sorry, like, and there's another sound we will own it yeah. and then you can run it as of the moment we have no wrc so i'm like does that might help supercars does nothing for australian motorsport though so then there's a bombshell on february 27 2001 where the South Australian um, Premier John Olsen reveals that they're no longer going to back the Adelaide American Le Mans Series race. But so obviously Don Panos has been in the country for 10 days prior to that announcement. Yeah. And he'd only just got home. Boards the plane back home, confident. uh, Obviously he's got a 10-year deal in his back pocket working towards December 2. And where does Mr Olsen decide to announce that formal cancellation, Luke? At what, a, what did I at tell a liberal you? luncheon. Yes. <laughs> so you just think, you meet with someone, you do a deal, and then you, in the interim, yep. he's done a backflip. And out of all the places to announce this, can I say this without actually talking to Don Panos, yep. is that a, a liberal function? Yeah. Let's which, not get politics into oh, it. No, no, no. Sorry. At a function, a, a political function. function um, and so you just go, well, how does that work? Yeah. What, yeah, like, yeah. why why, why is that the process to announce a cancellation that there's actually been an agreement? Yeah. So that that struck me as a little bit odd from John Olsen. Yeah. And his, um, his justification for it is he said the choice was Le Mans or 2000, or 200 nurses. We've taken 200 nurses. And he also says a factor was an overload on the city parklands. I guess the problem is you're never going to win an argument that involves putting the funding towards nurses or hospitals oh, wasn't mm. over a car race. Don was like, like... Taking all the financial risk. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, that's a good point because another part of it says that um, there were rumours that cost the, SA, the South Australian government $8 million. But, which, but which, yet uh, it's also mentioned in another place that, yeah, they took all the risk. Yeah. The Penoz Motor Group. Yeah, so once again, strange. Like, and, and like, Jamie, could be 100% right, but that's that's also... The race versus nurses argument is also one that you don't want people to argue against. Like, I mean, you use that as a straw argument, so no one's going to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No one yeah. can argue it. Yeah. Yeah. You're never going to win it. But it, what I'm saying is, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of fact behind that as well, because you know you're not going to get quizzed hard on it. No. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, pe- the the Penoz Group comes out, you know, off, you know, with the usual stuff you can expect. They come out with saying what what the event offered, and um. Well, amongst other things, Don Penoz, we refer back in the previous episode, we talked about how we thought of it all as a family, the American Le Mans series as a, as a family rather than a racing series. And he says that he brought his entire family of 26 out to the race and that he'd had a draft contract confirming the race for four more years. Yeah. So, And you throw into that as well. So Dean Rainsford, who's um, obviously Cooper's Brewery, who are an event partner of Don Penoz in running the event, he was quoted as saying um, that he was aware of outside influences that may have prompted the Premier's statement at that uh, political luncheon. Yeah. So um, we're not doing the Clips of Five Hundred if you guys correct. This event. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of you kind of move like look around and you go well you know you've got a prominent like Cooper's obviously very proud Adelaide South Australian company and citing some external influences. We're looking at the WRC example and that yep. kind of antagonistic and fighting and you go oh, i wonder i wonder what some of these or who these outstern out sorry external influences could be yeah. it'd be interesting to know because obviously we're all just speculating and these are all just rumors that have filtered through over 20 years or so but 
It'd be interesting to know what actually isn't happened. there. Isn't there a bit of form that you know? rumours or you know information that's come out that it's not the first time for a event at the Adelaide Parklands that a prominent category was pushed off the bill after it was agreed yeah. wasn't it something super touring uh was it 99 or or even 2000 yeah, super tours were supposed to be start part of the 99 yeah, Adelaide 500 invited by the government though the government wanted yeah, them some, on the bill an early plan for it they were going to be yeah. part of it but it they were going to race Saturday super where supercars would race Sunday. Yeah, and they got vetoed. TCR, something got TCR, changed. TCR was it? TA two's been in recent times. Oh, TA two got they up ran in the year. end. Yeah, but wasn't that there was some conjecture? Uh, um, something. Yeah. About, about a was it a intellectual property rights over body panels for oh, well, I, an American category? To Brock's point, I, I agree. Like we're just we're going through all these quotes and different articles around the time, but mm. I think it's fairly obvious that uh, from a, a V8 supercar or a Vesco point of view, they didn't want two races yeah. in Adelaide and they wanted to be the, the only show mm. in town. And I guess to close this as well, unrelated, but uh, John Olsen, uh, South Australian Premier at the time, uh, a few years later, wound up working for a Vesco. Yeah. was brought on by Tony Cochran. Yeah. So if that uh, may help close the circle and obviously point to the relationship that existed. in 2001. Yes. As South Australian Premier. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. not long after. Yeah. So, yeah, no, an interesting time. And, and as I said, for, so sad to see that culminate. Yeah. Um, and, and at least by Don Panels' words here too, all of it while he was out of the country. Yeah, so. yeah. To be fair to the, to the Panels group, they got straight down trying to, rather than dwell on trying to talk the Adelaide government, South Australian government back into it, they got on with trying to find another event. Mate, and that's it. The, like, this podcast has put Don Panos really on a pedestal. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know him, but based <laughs> on this, like, he sounds like a cool guy. But it's like, like successful businessmen, they, they get a big knock back. Yeah. They, as you said, you didn't sit and dwell on it, the panels group, but they go back what? and go, "I'm going to show you." It seems what to I'm me. Try and do. Seems to me, this dude is just like, I just want to race in Australia. It's mm. cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and let's and just have everyone's a race. trying. I'm trying to invest tens of millions of dollars, <laughs> yeah. and people are standing <laughs> in my way. Yeah. Don't you want he's my like, money? He's <laughs> like, let's just have a race. <laughs> you don't like it's. Yeah. Do you not like yeah. finance? Yeah. yeah. Super cool. <laughs> Quite a legend. Sandown through the the then promoter of the track, John Davison. Uh, proposes to host the race in place of um, Adelaide, but on the proviso it's a December 9 race, a week after the original December 2 date, because that's when they're holding the Clashing Verd supercar event. Um, but, he, but he states that Sandown is willing to host it, but Penoz must underwrite the whole event, which I would say he probably would have. And it would have been potentially. a significant yeah, less I, cost than doing a street race, so... And no disrespect to Sandow, but I don't, I don't think that necessarily fit in with the Le Mans vision that we talked about earlier that yeah, Don yeah. would be going for. Was it a, did it receive like good sort of feedback when the Group C cars ran there? Not really. No? No, it wasn't a pop... Not, 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 not a big crowd. The layout didn't really lend itself to great racing. Uh, I know the drivers didn't really particularly, but, okay. particularly like, the, like the Sandown Grand Prix track, which I assume is what they would have used, mm. the bit that cuts out um, when, Dandenong Road. When did yeah. they get ripped up? 2002. Oh, right. Okay. I was they realigned like, the, the horse track in 2002. If they started, but they hadn't used the track, the Grand Prix track, since probably this 
Australian superbikes when they supported V8 supercar yeah. rounds in 98 or 99. Mm. It probably hadn't been used since then. So, and that was, that was only being used for bikes because the bikes couldn't go down Dandenong on road. How do you think the race would have panned out if it went on the current layout that we've got today? It would have just been two straights yeah. with the flip-flop over the top. And there, How do you think the, the race would have gone down if it did go there? I don't oh, think it's don't the sort of track that lends themselves to those sorts of cars. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be fine, but yeah, I just don't think it played in with the overall, yeah, kind of Le Mans yeah. take, whereas a city Mind race... You, neither does Adelaide, really. From a <sighs> track, I mean, it was a... It was a... Cla- but that you think the Formula 1 and that kind yeah, of okay, connection. Yeah. There's a sort of... Um, a sort of mystique about street tracks, isn't there? Where even yeah. if it's a crap race, they're exciting yeah. to watch. Okay. Well, ultimately, a street race is what comes up. And and, and an interesting one at that, actually. Yeah. Interesting location. So they did a deal with the New South Wales government to hold a race scheduled for December 8, so a Saturday, 2001, in Homebush on the Olympic precinct. Just a year after the 2000 Olympics. Perfect timing. Eight years before the V2 supercar race got up on the streets of Homebush. Again, a good idea. Yep. yep. So the deal, the deal was for a four-hour race with 90 minutes at night. So I would assume, what, December sunset would be about 8 o'clock. Yep. So yeah. So probably you're looking at a, a 5.30 to 9.30 sort of race. Mm-hmm. Would have been, would have been amazing. And um, David Brabham gets quoted again for a new local race saying Adelaide put on a fantastic event but Sydney will be a great place to hold the event and in interestingly December 8th not December 2nd yes yeah. yes yeah. actually that's a good They've point pushed it seven days forward of yep. the supercar working event. solution yep. Yep. yep but uh as goes with motor racing it's never everyone's looking out for themselves with the race announced for Homebush, the um, Australian Racing Drivers Club, who run Eastern Creek, and the Bathurst City Council, who at the time were going for funding on um, getting the pits and facilities improved at Bathurst, they uh, they questioned the funding for the Homebush race straight away with uh, Bathurst Mayor Ian McIntosh saying, I would hope it would not be taking money that could have gone to Bathurst. And the ARDC comes out saying it's concerned but can understand why the New South Wales government would be interested in a race at Homebush. And also, it also says, ARDC also said that they were interested in negotiating to hold the Le Mans race at Eastern Creek, which would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah. Same, same issue you have, though, with Sandown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they said if the Le Mans race did go to Homebush, the ARDC wanted to supply services and their experience and everything yep. to, get, to get something yeah. out of it. And it also says the ADC were vehemently against a V8 supercar race at Homebush. Why is that? Uh, well, ultimately, they lost their round. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was used as a, if we get a Sydney round, we, we won't, won't go, go to Eastern Creek anymore. Which uh, is ultimately what happened yeah. in 2009. Which is except, interesting except now. because it, it's, it was, it's a government-owned site at Eastern Creek that ARDC run on behalf of the government. So... Yeah, be yeah. It's interesting on that fact. Yeah. So everything seems like it's all set to go. The new finale on December eight, and then all of a sudden, the race gets cancelled. Because, hang on, uh, why did the race get cancelled, Daniel? Have a guess. Uh, I'm going to guess 
publicly it was announced because of a certain uh, type of frog That's in the area. Incorrect. Adam, why do you think the race was cancelled? Outside influences? Incorrect. It was cancelled because of a frog. Daniel was correct. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually, I don't fully believe it was cancelled because of a frog. I think that was I'd once again. That. I reckon but it was a convenient thing that they could announce. I don't know, man. But, but it's well, you think they just backed out of the race? Well, the, the frog, yeah. the frog egg didn't just appear in two thousand and one. No. The, fro- the frog, well, no, been there no, but they didn't <laughs> yeah. know they were there. Maybe it was a nest for there, and maybe with all the recent development. That sort of frog mm. had been under threat or something. So they, they spotted a green and golden bell frog, which was on Australia's list of vulnerable species. I'm going to look and up f- that frog and we'll just give a description of what it looks like as well. <laughs> and while Brock does that, the frog was had forced the redesign of the Olympic precinct in 1993 for the 2000 Olympics. But yeah, no, you think it was well, no. It's, so my, my, I guess my point is, it was there before the Olympic site was built, and they were able to turn that thing upside down and put yeah. hundreds of thousands of people through there for a day. I don't, I don't understand, and nor do I believe that that stopped a car race in two thousand and one when it had the Olympics. So yeah. it existed pre all these events, yeah. and so yeah. because I think it was just convenient um, again to prevent. Going into the real details, because yeah. it was rumored at when supercars went there, they had a similar issue that got brought up again about the the, the frog being there, but the race went ahead. Yeah, the government so, fa- the found found a way around it. Yeah, so, well, yeah. the frog um, for everyone wondering is it just looks like a normal green frog, <laughs> <laughs> um, and some of them have have a bit of gold on them, but you know I like frogs, yeah. I like animals. Yeah. All right. Well, there's Just nothing against vulnerable species, <laughs> yeah. but like if it was there, as Daniel said, 93, yeah, I think outside influence yeah. has come into it. Mm. So with that, um, Penoz basically says they think it's a solvable problem, but there's not enough time and call, calls the calls the calls an Australian trip off for 2001. And ultimately with that, the after 2001, the... American Le Mans series doesn't go to Europe anymore. It did two races there in 2001, but after that just sticks to America. And the dream sort of ended after that. Sad. Can I just throw in one thing, though? It didn't quite have to end. No. In 2009, the A1GP uh, reneged on their deal um, to race at the Gold Coast Indy after the Indy cars finished. And in a Gold Coast Motorsport uh, document, one of the options put forward was for the ALMS series in 2009 and beyond to be that replacement category that obviously ended up going to the Vat Supercars. Uh, But one of the category risks identified was that the legacy of an unsuccessful Adelaide event in 2000 was a deciding factor in them not being put forward, which I found interesting because for everything we've discussed today, I don't think that's a representative uh, take on what actually occurred in Adelaide. Yeah, the yeah. stigma kind of that stuck to it because of all these scenarios yeah, has yeah. been uh, that it's unsuccessful. So. Would that be a loaded thing at the time? Because um, I think at the reprise of the Gold Coast event around that time, uh, Supercars supercars had an involvement of the rebrand after A1GP. Yeah, but so did IMG have something to do with the Gold Coast prior to prior to that? No, so this story yeah. was done by the government. Oh, but I right. think it just showed you the overall feel that was projected from yeah. it, which I thought yeah. was pretty disappointing well, to see that in writing. Yeah. So. We can all maintain hope. 
because the full field of him is the cars in Australia. That would be fantastic. Be there yeah. wherever it is in the country. Well, that'd be Bathurst, the Bathurst 12-hour trip on tour, I think. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So if you, if you had to sum up in final summary, just a, a quick quick final thought on the event. Just I'm I, Going through this has been great and mm. heartbreaking to relive at the same time, but... I live by the words, it's better to have loved than lost than to never have loved at all. So um, yeah. so I still look back on that that race very fondly. Unique event, only happened once. Great if, it, if something to the same calibre could come back to it. But yeah, looking back on the race, 20 years this year on it, fantastic event for it there and I hope something close to it comes back shortly mm. so we can enjoy it. Yeah. Like a good concept. Sad, yeah. Sad, really. Unfulfilled. <laughs> Unfulfilled. Yeah. Sad. And uh, God, him. So please, please come back. Yeah, I feel. For, I feel for Don Panels mm, too for Don. putting Sorry, his Don. so much work into it. And uh, Imza, please. I want to see those GTLM Porsches, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I'm just glad that the race ultimately wasn't decided by a kilt. That's <laughs> yep. That or is a, a positive or yeah. a luggage. So, in <laughs> final question, did Brad Jones win? The race of a thousand years. No, he did not. Okay, well, that's that then, guys. <laughs> <laughs> he was. They they were thinking they tried to get him in for the last fifteen minutes of the race, but Audi couldn't get an answer on whether oh, okay. whether um, if, if the car the didn't wall. finish, yeah. would they still be credited with the win because they were that far in front? And if you have the option to buy a two thousand one or a two thousand panels, buy the two thousand <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Motor Racing Passion is produced by Luke Ryan for Tum Drum Media.